I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. everyone. Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. I'm recording this right before my family and I are heading out of Los Angeles to drive up to Oregon, where we are going to be spending a couple of weeks over the holidays, which I am really, really excited about. We don't have family there. Uh, There's just a town there that we love. It kind of feels like home, even though we've only visited two other times. But each time that we've gone, we've stayed for about a month at a time. And both my husband and I worked remotely from there. The last time we were up there, I was writing chapter three of Unlatched. This was a couple years ago. And so I was writing mostly when the kids were napping and at night after everyone had gone to bed. So it wasn't super restful. I'm really looking forward this time to taking a nice block of time away from work, from my computer, and spending a lot of time outdoors in the fresh, wintry air, which will feel really nice after all this polluted air from the fires that we've been breathing in here in Los Angeles. We are planning on doing a lot of hiking up there. I really want to try snowshoeing and cross-country skiing, which I've never done before. I did grow up doing some downhill skiing, which of course is so fun. Um, But I'm really interested, especially since doing the show, in expanding my skill set to sports that aren't just sports. You know, sports being something in our culture that we think of as doing purely for entertainment. And that word actually comes from the old French word, uh, desport or desport. I know my French friends listening to this are probably going to shudder when they hear that. But that word actually means to take pleasure. Um, but I think, you know, I I, I really want to expand into sports that go beyond that, that actually have some history and some functional purpose. And snowshoeing originated thousands of years ago with native people in the Americas and also in Europe around that same time period as a way to traverse new territories, to source food in the winter. And cross-country skiing, I was really interested to learn, was invented for the same reason, archaeologists think, maybe even more than 6,000 years ago by the Sami people of Scandinavia. Um which it's just incredible to think it goes back that far, right? I think the only cross-country skiing I saw growing up was unfortunately a Nordic track. So of course, I am hoping to have fun while I am learning these new uh, beyond sports, I will call them. But I love also that there is a history there and a real functional skill that I think is so important to preserve for future generations. So I hope that you are also going to have some time over the holidays to head outdoors with your loved ones, to take a road trip somewhere beautiful, even if it's just for a day or two. You know, uh, put the technology away. Maybe tell yourself you'll post everything on Facebook and Instagram after you get back. (laughs) Um, All right. I have a very special guest for you today architect, designer, and writer Sophia Borges. She is a faculty member at the USC School of Architecture, and with her students, she used architecture to create a really remarkable solution to combat the homeless crisis here in Los Angeles, although it could be adapted really anywhere. It's called Homes for Hope. Some have called them tiny homes for the homeless, and they are these light-filled, really beautiful, stackable microstructures that can be rapidly deployed to get people off the streets. The homeless situation has gotten so out of control here in Los Angeles, in cities across the country. And 
I really don't think we can talk about a sustainable urban future without addressing this monumental problem. And, you know, the coolest thing about Sophia's solution is that the possibilities for these structures are really endless, and they could be used in a number of different ways to transform the urban environment, which you are going to hear about here today. Sophia is really thoughtful. She is really passionate. Um, we don't go into this on the show, but she did lose her brother a couple of years ago as a result of his struggles with homelessness and mental illness. And she wrote a really, really moving piece about that in the LA Times, which I will post on the show notes page. So I'm telling you this because I just want you to know that Sophia is not just some privileged architect telling people how we should fix homelessness or how people should live their lives. She is drawing on a lot of personal experience about what people in these situations actually need. This conversation really changed me. Um, it changed how I think about our responsibility as a society to push for solutions like the one Sophia proposes here. And I think it will change how you feel too. So I will leave you with that. Just a heads up, the show will be off next week for the holiday, and then I will be back right after the new year with a really, really exciting episode for you that I know you won't want to miss. Until then, enjoy this time with your loved ones. Enjoy some time outside, some time in nature, and I will see you next year. Sophia Borges is a Los Angeles-based writer, architect, designer, curator, and educator. She is a faculty member at the USC School of Architecture, the director of the Martin Architecture and Design Workshop, otherwise known as Mad Workshop, a regular contributor to Mark Magazine, and a contributing curator at design book publisher Victionary. Sophia spent more than half a decade as the architecture editor at Gestalten Books and founded the design firm's Color Block and Effects Studio. She is also the author and editor of nearly two dozen titles on architecture and design, including The Tale of Tomorrow, Hide and Seek, and The New Nomads. Sophia recently spearheaded the USC School of Architecture's first ever advanced topics design studio on the homeless crisis in Los Angeles. The culminating project, Homes for Hope, won the Fast Company 2017 World Changing Ideas Award. Sophia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Sophia, I know I read in your bio that, not the bio I just read here, but on your site, that you've really lived all over the world. So where, where did you grow up and how did you get to where you are now? Ooh, that's, that's quite a question. Or just well, start with where you grew up. Let's, <laughs> let's make enough. it easy. Fair enough. Uh, I grew up between here and Mexico as a child. So we kind of split the years between Los Angeles and Oaxaca. My father had uh, a fair amount of work down there um, doing research with public health. And so I would split the year between LA and Mexico. And then we also ended up in Cuba a fair amount and um, South America as well. And that didn't make me super popular growing up because, you know, summers, those times away feel like forever when you're a kid. And so it was a little bit hard to be integrated in either place, but it was still very interesting to have a kind of a really diverse upbringing. And then I stayed in LA for a long time and then um, did started an architecture school and then ended up finishing my undergrad in New York and then coming back to LA for grad school and then going away again to Europe for several years. And now I'm back and just really happy to be home and not running around anymore. I'm sure. I'm sure. Wait, so did you have family in Oaxaca? Well, now? we had, and, well, they uh, family friends and they're all, they're all safe. Everybody's they're all okay. Okay. Yeah, they are. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that. I know it's just been a, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Oh, it sure has. It's, it's, it's really, uh, it's a lot. It's been a lot. Yeah, I know. And, and when you're in LA too, cause we're, you know, we're both in LA, it, 
there's such a huge population here of people from Mexico. And so you just, you know, you really feel it. It feels like, obviously it didn't happen to us, but you know, there's, there's a real impact that everyone's feeling here right now. Absolutely. And we're also just very overdue for our own earthquakes. I think it's, it's kind of a sobering wake up call just all around. Well, uh, yeah. And I know you must be thinking about that as an architect. <laughs> oh yeah, I do. We're going to be in big trouble, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I, this could actually end up being a podcast about earthquake preparedness. But, oh, um, you no, know, I, I need to get my earthquake kit together. I, I keep buying things and then I get lazy and then I eat the things and drink the water and then I have to start a new earthquake kit. So I maybe I should put a lock on it or something going forward. Yeah. You know, the same thing just happened to us. I uh, made sure after, did you feel that tremor the other night? Oh yeah. No, it woke me up. I, and I thought, wow, I really need to get my act together. I was actually in the earthquake in Japan um, in oh, 2011. Wow. And, but that, that, you know, they have such amazing engineering. If they hadn't had the tsunami, everything would have been fine essentially. But here, if we had had that level of earthquake here, I mean, it would be catastrophic. So that just made me think, wow, I really need to get my act together in LA because we are overdue for something and we're not prepared. Yeah, no, me too. And I, so when I opened the cabinet, we have this cabinet in our storage room with earthquake supplies. And I saw that the, with the water, someone had drank the water. Probably my yeah, husband. Happened. I know. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're both going to get on that. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, tell So tell me about you said that you you made your way to architecture school, but why, why did you be, decide to become an architect? You come, I I don't want this to sound bad, but I, I really don't meet a lot of women architects. And mm-hmm. so, did you come from a family of architects and artists? Like, how did you decide to become a, an architect? Oh, I super didn't come from a family of architects, um, and I still don't completely know the answer of why I ended up in this area, but. I'd say that I am very affected by space and space making, and it's always been something very important to me. But I came from, you know, a background of art, and I always was ending up, or and I actually started in photography, and so I would end up mainly though taking pictures of buildings and interiors and spaces, and and I was always criticizing them. You know, I worked at, this is going to sound unpopular, but it's okay. My, my one job right after college, I worked at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and it had just reopened. And it had so many problems in terms of just the functionality of the layout and, you know, everyone was getting used to the new galleries and it was really complicated and it wasn't working. And, and I kind of started doing these like little critical essays about the spaces and how much I disliked them. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm, and then I ended up in undergrad, I was also doing urban studies. And so it was kind of this, um, I was photographing buildings and criticizing them, and I was also interested in urbanism, and it just kind of felt like a natural progression from there into architecture proper. But I think even now, I've never been one of those people that always wanted to do one thing inherently. You know, I, I really admire those people that wanted to be a fireman when they grew up, and then they became one, and they're satisfied. I've kind of always had my hands in all the cookie jars. Yeah, me too. And, yeah, and I still feel that that's true. And I've never, you know, I, I'm in architecture, but I'm always kind of walking out the periphery and reaching out into other things at the same time. So I, I, I definitely have more of a passion for architecture, I suppose, than anything else. But, um, but I think it's not about just doing that exclusively, always kind of having this collaborative and flexible relationship to all things related to design and space and yeah, that's so interesting. I, I just want to get back to something you mentioned. So you said you were critiquing all these buildings. Like what what bothered you about 
some of this architecture that you were seeing, especially a place like, you know, the Museum of Modern Art, which you would think is like <laughs> the pinnacle of modern design. So sure. What were the, some of the things that you came up against? Well, there was just a lot of things, you know, a lot of the circulation in that building was pretty depressing. I think it's gone a little bit better now, but the corridors and the, um, the main circulation uh, routes were very dark. You know, there wasn't really, there was no natural lighting in those spaces. Things felt really cramped. Um, the bathrooms were just really not thought out very well. Um, and even the gallery spaces just felt really cold. And I, at the very, the very beginning of their kind of inaugural displays, they had uh, a Monet, the water lilies up, but the way they had put it up offended everybody. It just, it felt like it was just in, um, it felt like it was in the bookstore, essentially. Like there was like, there was no kind of elevation of the work. The spaces felt cold and commercial and it wasn't really moving people. So I think it took, it took the museum quite a while to get its groove within, within that new building it had provided for itself. But yeah, initially it was just kind of a hot mess. Especially <laughs> just working there every day. <laughs> Hopefully the, the who, whoever built that, who, who was in charge of that exhibit, they, they probably won't be listening right now, but. Cool, I, it was a long time ago. I'm sure they don't remember me. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's much better now you know they've worked out their kinks I mean that's the thing is you I that's why I would never live in a new building because to me I, I'm a sucker for history and I think you build character over time and so a brand new building struggles kind of struggles with that how to assimilate and find how, how people feel comfortable with it so I think it's just the early growing pains that are common with any new building so it's not just that I'm throwing MoMA under the bus but I think it's just it's it takes time for people to get used to something new. I was going to say one of the things, obviously, I don't speak the language of architecture, but one of the really interesting things I've noticed about modern architecture in the beginning was very cold. And we sort of moved toward this, you know, it's very popular now to have a lot of natural light and this return to natural materials. And um, I noticed a lot of that in your work. I mean, you've written some wonderful books that are really about like, get back to to almost the history of how human beings used to live and incorporates that into modern design uh does does that did i describe that well or no <laughs> oh no absolutely yes so how did you come to that aesthetic like did you was it was it simultaneous with like looking at these buildings that didn't speak to you i mean how did you kind of or do you have a modern aesthetic or a design aesthetic Ooh, that's a good question i i would say that i i'm very influenced I mean, I'm influenced by some aspects of modernity, certainly. I think um, there's there's parts of modernity that have some human qualities, you know, even just access to light and these kind of pure, simple volumes, all of that is pretty great. Um, but I do, I maybe, and maybe it's just kind of my diverse upbringing, but I've always um, been really interested in, you know, history and quirk and also, you know, having cultural traces in a, in a, um, in a structure. And I'm really, kind of having a building relate to its context so that you because even you know in the international style everywhere looks like everywhere it's kind of the the, the the airport syndrome where you know you end up in these non-places that really are disconnected from where you are and so to me I really love being in California and I love being in Los Angeles because there is such a, um, a whimsical and very California aesthetic that's very strong here especially with our older building stock not so much with what's happening, you know, the newer constructions. But 
I think I've always kind of been, you know, I think that lighting is really important. Having access to nature is really important. The idea of a courtyard is, you know, one of my architectural ideals, I would say in a, in a residence. Not that I have one now, but it's a dream. One of the struggles, I think, of living in LA, and it's not a struggle for us, but one of the things that, because I'm not from here, you know, I'm from the East Coast. Mm. And one of the things I noticed about LA is that you have people living in some of the most beautiful homes you could possibly imagine. And a lifestyle that you could never even imagine growing up in a place with, you know, in the East Coast and dealing with the seasons. And here people are living like with outdoor kitchens and mm-hmm. um, beautifully landscaped yards and access to the outdoors all the time. And some people live up in the hills with hiking trails. And and at the same time, you know, this is a city of haves and have nots. And so mm-hmm. I've never lived anywhere else where there's just such a striking divide between how people live. I wonder if you could just talk about your experience living in LA and, and how do you feel? Did you encounter that? Because I've noticed that the homelessness crisis has just spiraled out of control even in the 10 years since I've been here. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I would say that the last 10 years have been the critical, the critical change in Los Angeles. You know, we, LA has had a level of poverty. All cities, especially in the US, do. But um, LA has become, it's changed so much in the last decade. I, I think a lot of this has to do with inflation rates. I mean, LA has gotten extremely expensive. LA used to be kind of one of the last affordable places. And it was great because it's also like paradise. So you could afford it and you didn't have winter and life was good. But it's gotten just extraordinarily expensive in the last few years. And there, ha- of course, there was a homeless issue in the past, but it's never been the way it is now. I mean, I've never seen my city look this bad and have see so much suffering and have it be so pervasive. But it's absolutely connected to our homeless crisis. Uh, sorry, not our homeless crisis, our housing crisis. We have a complete housing shortage. So we have a 2% vacancy rate in the city. That 2%? Means that e- 2%. So that means that even if you can afford housing, you have to compete for it. What's standard so, in, and sorry to interrupt you, but what's standard no. in other parts of the country? You know, I, I actually don't have those numbers, but 2% is obviously not sustainable. And yeah. 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 So I, I, we have the, I, I knew that it's, we have the worst numbers in terms of vacancy anywhere, which is part of what's the problem is. So it's basically that drives up rents and real estate values. And so each month, everything gets more expensive. And each month, the lowest, um, people are thrown off the lowest rung of, of how the housing supply. And so that's why you're seeing more and more people in the streets. And the, the fact that, you know, the, the new numbers for the homeless population in LA increased 23% since last year it's staggering, but it's also completely not surprising. But what we have now is something, you know, it's an epidemic, it's completely unsustainable. And we have to act very soon because this clearly isn't working. And, I'm, and I've never seen this level of suffering. And it, it, I find it very painful. Uh, and it's just become so ubiquitous. And I think as a society, we have to be really careful because there is, yes, we voted for um, Prop HHH and Measure H, and that's all very good but there's still this incredible level of nimbyism that is pervasive here. And I, I have plenty of, I know plenty of people, mentors, people that you know, like the work that I do, know that people need homes, but then when it comes down to it, they don't want it in their neighborhood. And if, if I say, well, let me put my shelter there, they'll vote against it. 
Explain what NIMBYism is for people who don't know. Sure. NIMBYism is um, basically just an acronym for not in my backyard. So people have this idea that they want to do something, but they want to do it far away from them. Because if you put it in your backyard, it attracts riffraff, it brings down your property values, and it can make your neighborhood feel unsafe, all of those kinds of issues. But what my argument is, is it's already in your backyard. Homelessness in Los Angeles now is so pervasive. It's everywhere. It used to just be concentrated in Skid Row or certain places, but the population in Skid Row only accounts for 10% of the homeless population in Los Angeles. It's everywhere. And most of it isn't in Skid Row now. 90% is everywhere else. So this kind of argument and short-sighted idea that it's, you know, this will bring down my property values and this and that, it already is because it's ubiquitous. Yeah. But they're, but they're, but they're actually physically on the streets rather than housed and safe. Well, so it's much I, worse. I can speak to that because where we are right now, I mean, literally we on the bike path to school that I take with my girls in the morning, this morning we passed someone who had strung up a hammock between two street signs, mm-hmm. literally at the edge of the bike path where the Metro line stop is. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I mean, it is, uh, it's just, I don't even know how to describe it so that people listening can understand. And, and there will be photos along with this podcast, but it's every every freeway underpass you go. There are tent camps. I mean, like you can't even imagine what it's like. And so, you know, part of the problem is how do we change perceptions about this nimbyism? Because I can speak to the fact that, like, look, my my kids are scared when we mm-hmm. when we drive and bike past some of the people that we see on the street, and some of them who clearly are mentally ill, and mm-hmm. you know. How do we change perceptions so that we can start working toward a real solution? You know, and what what can I say to my kids? Because I we talk about all the time, like this is this is a very modern problem in this in the scale of, you know in the history of humanity. There's never been anything like this before, and this isn't normal. And how can we as a society allow this to persist? And but I don't know what to say. And I think if I can find a way to explain it to my kids, then maybe we can find a way to explain it to adults too. Yeah, that's, it's a really good question. I mean, I think what, the way we're going in Los Angeles can't continue, not, not, for, not for a long period of time because it's not sustainable. And it's getting to the point where everything is getting so exorbitantly overpriced that, you know, more people than would like to admit are just a paycheck or two away from being homeless themselves. And that's, and that's kind of the issue is that it's not just kind of, oh, well, if only they, you know, these people, because there's, there's so many ways to, uh, you know, apply stigma uh, and assumptions to people experiencing homelessness and assume you know why they're on the streets and say, well, if they just applied themselves, right, they could, they, they could be housed. You know, if they could just apply themselves, they could, you know, be an apartment or whatever. But the thing is, if they apply themselves, they might at best make minimum wage and they still can't afford the housing here because even people who can afford it can barely afford it. It's it's too expensive. They're the 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 gap is too high between what people actually earn and what things cost here. And so that becomes this whole. Um, I, I would hope that that kind of humanizes this problem a little bit because at some point we're gonna have to be like even you know even I can't afford it you know so I can I understand why these people are on the streets. I'm I'm almost on the streets so. But I think I think the real thing is, you know, having people unhoused is creates conditions that are 
more dangerous, more upsetting than shelter. And so at some point we have to decide, well, my neighborhood already looks bad, already feels like it's divided, already feels like it's dangerous because people are just out there exposed to the elements. I see them, they're, you know, and there's it, garbage I, everywhere. And there's garbage. And it's it's not, you know, there's it's not hygienic. And and I agree, all those things are true. And so then at some point they might say, well, they're here anyway. At least let's put them indoors and offer them social services. And because it, it is it is not like, oh, well, they're in skid row, out of sight, out of mind. They're in your neighborhood. They're here. So it it, it everybody, everybody benefits from having a little bit more humanity and deciding that we need to start offering shelter everywhere, not just in places that you don't see because the people are everywhere now. So tell me about this idea that you and your, it's your architecture students, right? At yeah. UC, my, have created. Yeah. My, yeah tell yeah. me. So tell me about what your vision is and what you've done because it's amazing. Oh, well, thank you. Um, So this project was uh, I worked on with my partner, Scott Mitchell, who also teaches at the USC School of Architecture and our students. And basically, you know, they're the kind of the it word or it slogan right now um, about homelessness is permanent supportive housing. And permanent supportive housing is the solution to ending homelessness. That's what works. Um, and permanent supportive housing is basically housing that is subsidized, subsidized or free that has wraparound social services attached. And that works. That ends homelessness. The problem is, is that to build anything in Los Angeles and the permitting process associated with that takes two to five years. So everyone wants permanent supportive housing. I want it too, but it takes a long time and it does nothing to help people today who are on the streets today. And so all of the funding and all the attention have gone towards permanent supportive housing and nothing has really been done for emergency stabilization housing. And it's it's been a little bit tricky because it's not like in order to do one, you can't do the other, or that it's either or, because really it's both and. You need to be doing, you know, immediate work and long-term work simultaneously. Otherwise, you don't actually get anywhere. Because again, the permanent supportive housing takes years, and then you're only doing a little bit of housing stock per building. So two to five years for 40 units, two to five years for 60 units, two to five years for 35 units. You know what I'm saying? And how do you so, even do you assess, assess what people need if you don't have a handle on who's in the emergency situation? Well, that's exactly right. And the thing is, is that you can also, let's say that you have permanent supportive housing available. Um, and there are plenty of times where there's actually people who are on the streets with Section 8 vouchers that have nowhere to use them. Because What is a Section 8 voucher? A Section 8 voucher is basically subsidized housing where the government will pay for your housing. And it's a, it's, it's a voucher that says, my housing is paid for. You just have to rent to me. But people don't want to. And even if they want to, there's no housing available. So you end up having to, these people will spend months, sometimes even years, with a voucher for housing and nowhere to go because no one will take them. And... So that's really hard. And, and the other thing is, is that it's a huge transition to go from being on the streets to being in a forever home. And there needs to be this an intermediate place for people to get stabilized, for people to start getting their social services, for people to start getting their footing, because it's a rude awakening going from one extreme to the other. And often if you just go from one to the other, it doesn't work. It's, it, it, it becomes, it's, it's 
it's a gap that's too hard to jump um, from one side to the other without something, some kind of intermediary uh, place for people to get their bearings. And so that's kind of where we wanted to do our work. And this this project was uh, sponsored by David and Mary Martin of Mad Workshop, and they and they also wanted specifically, what can you do today? Because it's it's awful today, and it's not it's not good enough to say I've, all of you wait for two to five years, and then we'll see what happens. It's not acceptable. I mean, people's their their lives at stake each each night. It's you know, and you know, we're going into fall and winter and rainy season, and it's not acceptable to just say it's fine. Let's just leave these people out there and just know at some point. There's there's housing coming, but really, if you think that you know we continue to get everything continues to get more expensive, and we continue to kick people off of the lowest rungs, so by the time that housing is ready, we'll have a demand that's even greater than we have now, and and that same amount of units available. So this crisis, like there's just no way to catch up unless you start doing bigger, faster moves sooner. Just to humanize and, this a little bit, can you give me yeah, some examples of? who some of these people are and you say like the lowest rungs of mm -hmm. housing and and what this process is like for them well it's tricky so there's actually um databases that track chronically home the chronically homeless okay and so that basically will um it's, it's almost like a like for kidney donors or something where you're on a list and the list changes based on like dire needs and different parameters so there's a, there's a list that exists in Los Angeles for the chronically homeless. And to actually qualify to get a unit in permanent supportive housing, for instance, you have to be chronically homeless. And that can mean that you're on the streets for, for, from five to 25 years or more. So oh it's tricky God. because those people will get precedent over, you know, just like a mom and kids who just lost their apartment. So it, it's hard unless you really have you know, you get into um, a shelter or something that really works towards placing you in, in housing um, after your initial stay, sometimes the waits can be really long. So obviously someone who's been on the streets for a long time deserves to be housed, but that's, that, that's what's so tricky is we have, we have these chronically homeless individuals that have been on the streets for decades, and then we have this whole new, um, generation or guard of, of people experiencing homelessness that have just been kicked out of their houses, you know, last month or last Christmas or, and, and so we, we basically, we just, we have to move faster and we're not. And we basically wanted to see if we were able to design, design for the gap, design for the gap in services and say, is there something in between being on the streets and being in permanent supportive housing that we can do quicker? And one of the things, so basically this, this Homes for Hope was that the result of a series of design considerations that are all about expediting everything. So we wanted to work with the city to ask, what will you what will you permit faster than the permanent supportive housing? How can we actually create structures and house people until these permanent supportive housing solutions are available? What what are what are all the tricks and um, what what can we do so that you won't slow down a solution like this? So we can actually get something out on the streets within you know a six month time frame and and basically move them around. And one of the biggest 
things that slows down um, the process of actually constructing in LA is the, the public hearings process. And so we, by working with the Department of City Planning and Building and Safety, they were able to let us know, well, if you keep the total units, number of units in your, one of your complexes to 30 beds or less, that qualifies as a buy right project, which means you can skip the public hearings process. And so we were basically, we're designing for all of the loopholes, like any loophole that could potentially be a barrier to getting people sheltered. That's what we wanted to find out about. That's what we wanted to work around. And so Homes for Hope is really a complete collaboration um, between the city and the university, but also just understanding code compliance and and the needs of people who are currently experiencing homelessness. So we, we worked with the city on the one hand and people experiencing homelessness on the other to make sure that not only was it, you know, dotting every I and crossing every T, but it was actually a place people would want to be. And that, in a nutshell, is what Homes for Hope ended up becoming. Um, so I think we ended up finding a pretty, a pretty effective solution where we're able to design and fill, fill this gap and fill this need, but also having it be a space that does, it does feel like a home, not your forever home, but it is a place where you, you can take a breath and you, you know, they're, they're really wonderful spaces. I, I enjoy being in them and I, I, and the people that um, helped us design them enjoy it as well. So our hope now is that we can actually get the funding to really go forward so we can stop talking about it and start really helping. Yeah. And deploy them, deploy them quickly. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about just this crazy bureaucratic background. Oh, yeah. Because I think someone might look at the video for what you've created and, and the photos and say, well, this looks kind of frivolous because it's almost it's so gorgeous that you might say, well, you I think you said it in the video, like people say it's almost too nice. Sure. It's interesting that so you've created something that's not that isn't frivolous, that actually takes into account the bureaucracy and what you actually need to do to get it deployed so quickly. Well, it's tricky. You know, you actually reminded me that there's three components to this. One is dealing with the bureaucracy and the code compliance and all of this. And one is making it a space that people, you know, this kind of clientele would actually respond to. And the third is making, making is, is addressing nimbyism, addressing the people that don't want it in your, in your place. So that's, that's what's so funny is when people come back and say, Oh, this is too nice. And my response is, well, if it was less nice, you wouldn't put it in your neighborhood. There's no way I could ever get you on board. So the thing is, is that we don't actually, because we fall under a buy right project, we don't have to ask for your permission, but we know that if, you know, if you're against it, you will make our lives hard and we don't want you to be against it. We want you to think this looks just like a place where I could live. And that's the point. It's not about making a lower standard of design for people for, for one kind of person versus another. I and mean, that gets into like very dangerous rhetoric and pedagogy as a society. And to say that some people deserve something lesser because they are lesser, you know, that's that's just not how, that doesn't benefit anybody in the long term. And then you end up creating, you know, or you change the fabric of your city. You You know, you decide that this part should look less nice because a certain kind of people live there. I mean, that's very dangerous to start doing something like that. So. We were trying to, I mean, that, and that's the thing is, we, you know, we actually see Homes for Hope as having a couple different possibilities for, for production in the sense, you know, kind of like looking at Tom's shoes as an example, where they have 
the one for one model. We could totally see it this way too, where you know you give one to somebody in need, and then you have one in your backyard because it would be great in a backyard. They're very nice spaces. I love being in them. But the thing is, you don't have to. You can get a really great result with simple materials. I mean, this, these aren't expensive units. They might look nice, but that's just the matter of having a little bit of design thinking designed into them, and that that should be okay. That shouldn't be some kind of social faux pas to actually say that you know the space that we give someone who's been on the street should be a, a space that feels bad for them i mean why why would we do that what's the point it should be about rehabilitation not about some extension of like public shaming of course of course but and i think there's another factor too which is that in la like you said there's such a housing crisis and so many of us are struggling and can barely afford, you know, the tiny places that we're living now. I wonder if some other people are looking at this and thinking, well, I would really like one of those. Like, why should we just give them away to the homeless? As horrible as that sounds. But that's that, that's what's so great about Homes for Hope is that it's kind of, it has the potential to be, to be equalizing. And we can do, you know, we've been talking to several universities, you know, Cal State LA, one in 10 students is homeless, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of different possibilities for um, application for Homes for Hope. And so that was what was kind of great as we started initially working just with a client, uh, Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission in the San Fernando Valley. And so we thought we were going to be doing a client-specific project, but while it was client-inspired, it ended up becoming a very broadly applicable project, which was really exciting. So, you know, it could be used for student housing. It could be used for emergency stabilization housing. It could be used, we've, we've even had inquiries about you know, boutique hotels. There's, there's, there's a lot of different kind of ranges that this could be applied to. But the point is, is that it's code compliant. It can be produced quickly there. Um, and it changes what you think about when you think about a homeless shelter. It's not about having this huge complex. It's not about having long lines of people standing around every day. It, it basically it could look like any kind of apartment complex, one that you could even stand to live in. And it doesn't, and doesn't even have to be permanent. We can stage in and stage out of any site in two weeks or less. So if you don't want us there for a long time, that's fine. We can move on. And one of the things we've talked about with the city is basically um, during while their permanent supportive housing projects that are approved go through permitting, that's two to five years, and they're already in a neighborhood that knows it's coming, then we can basically occupy that land while um, the, the permanent supportive housing goes through um, all of the different stages of um, before construction. So uh, so basically warming the city up to, or warming the neighborhood up to the fact that something like this is coming and then we can move on to the next site. And so that's what's nice is that the units themselves are permanent, but their location can change. Right. Except I, I can imagine some of the long-term housing that comes in might not be as beautiful as what you've designed. Well, that's entirely possible, but at least by then, you know, the, the neighborhood has already accepted that that's coming. So that that's true. <laughs> Well, I that that idea of the Toms, mm -hmm. uh, it's really compelling. I mean, is that something you're actually going to move forward with or just one of the ideas that you're throwing out? Well, we would like to. I mean, I think that's been one of the nice things to see is, you know, people coming by that are, you know, business people and so on. And they come and see the unit and they, they say like, well, this is all it costs. Can I put one in my backyard? And the answer is yes, you can do that. Or you can have someone or, you know, there, there are the the base price of making these is very low. And so the, basically it's an economy of scale. So the more of these units we make, the more people we can house and the cheaper everything gets. 
And, you know, if you want nicer finishes for your model for your backyard, you can do that. And then that could help, you know, support one of the units in another complex for people that um, are waiting for their permanent supportive housing. So kind of everybody, everybody wins with a scenario like this. It's just about, you know, when we can start working on it. And we're, we are working with the city to develop a test uh, case. We're calling it a pop-up village. And we're looking at a site in Chinatown, which oh. would be really great. Tell me more about that. Um, well, we're looking at a site. It would be near Homeboy Industries, which is a really another really great organization. I know that and organization well. Can you tell us about it for those of the people who don't know? I don't. I, okay, I'm bad about summarizing or this. Maybe can you tell us? <laughs> well, I just know Homeboy because they're at our local farmers market that we go to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they as far as I know, they they sell baked goods and really delicious bread, and it's all former inmates. Inmates, exactly. So they they do a lot of um, they, so kind of social outreach and social rehabilitation. And um, they also, I think, make a line of clothing and they're, they're very diverse. And so they also want to branch out into housing at some point, which I think would be great. But our test case would be near them. And so we might, we, you know, we're talking about sharing a kitchen or I don't know, there's a lot of possibilities of what could happen, but that would be a really great test case because it's very public um, and would be a great model to kind of show what is possible. And the nice thing about Homes for Hope is that it can be staged into any site 5,000 square feet and up. It means it's very versatile. And there are so many, even though we have a housing shortage, we don't have a land shortage. So the city also has a tremendous amount of unused lots that are vacant. And we have the ability to activate almost any of them. And so our hope is that if we really start mass producing the solution that we can start sheltering people and a fair amount of people very quickly and just getting them off the streets and making sure they're safe. And that, that would be a really big step in the right direction. And it could, we're, we're able to go into production um, and have them out, out in the world within a six month time frame as soon as the funding is in place. So wow. you could start seeing a change very quickly. And what's the base price for one of these units? So if we only build one, it's $25,000 a unit. If we start mass reducing them, then it, the cost will drop dramatically. So if you think about the fact that most, I, I don't have the statistics in front of me right now, but it's cheaper to house people than to leave them on the streets. And the average price of keeping someone on the streets per year is extremely high based on you know the number of uh, medical complaints, uh, um, emergency room stays, all of that. So calls to the police. Calls to the police. Yeah. All that's extremely expensive. There's an article. I can't remember his name. It was in the New Yorker a few years ago. Million dollar somebody. I can't remember his name. But it was about the most expensive homeless person in New York City based on um, the number of public services and stuff that he, he required in order just to keep him on the streets, not to house him. Cost the city a million dollars a year. Wow. Yeah. So imagine that. Imagine and then versus $25,000 for one unit that can actually house multiple people over time because they will stay for three to six months and then move on to permanent supportive housing solutions. So you're always cycling through multiple people within one unit that only costs $25,000 if we only build one. So are there any other cities that have adopted a solution like this? I mean, has this been done before anywhere? I, I, LA seems no. like the natural place to do it just because we are facing 
a homelessness epidemic, unlike I would probably say any other city I can think of other than maybe San Francisco. Exactly. And that's actually kind of why we wanted to try to see if we could solve, make a solution here, because we have the some of the strictest building and zoning codes in the country, which means that if we were able to create a solution that the city of Los Angeles is okay with, if you can do it here, you can literally do it anywhere. There's really nowhere more challenging than to do it right here. Um, on top of the fact that it's already, you know, the place where we have the biggest homeless crisis. So that was kind of the model or the, the, the thinking for this design is, you know, to, to start it out in the mo most unlikely place for it to succeed and then ap apply it far beyond Los Angeles. And so that's, what's, that, that's one of the things we really love about this idea is that it can, there's, there's a broad range of people that can be positively impacted by the solution, but it also is not just an LA specific solution. It is LA compliant, but that means that, you know, anywhere where even disaster relief housing, like this would be great for Houston, for instance, or in anywhere where you need to rapidly stabilize people um, and have them not feel completely displaced and not just leave them in, you know, stadium shelters and provisional solutions. This, this is where we would come in. So when will the when first will ones actually be deployed? deployed? You were talking about the pilot project. Well, that's, that's a good question to direct to the city of Los Angeles. Um, we are still waiting for funding to, to you know, complete the idea. And um, I've kind of said this before, but I'm an architect, not a fundraiser. I know some people find fundraising very easy. I do not. And so you know, we're not looking for a lot of money, but it's more than I have personally. So I can't just fund it myself. But yeah, so we're hoping that you know, the funding starts happening. And the tricky thing is, you know, I, I know people listening think, well, I don't understand. I, I, we passed Prop HHH and Measure H. There should be funding for your project. Well, those, that funding was actually for permanent supportive housing, not for emergency stabilization housing. So that's kind of the problem is we need emergency stabilization housing, but there's no money for it. And so- Wow, I wish I had known that when I voted for that measure. Well, it's tricky because it, obviously it should have passed. I voted for it too. It's important it passed. Yeah, that of is course. important. Yeah, yeah, we could have started talking about the fact that there should have been something else. This should have been part of it. Right, so that that's the thing is that we, maybe it's about bringing up another measure. I don't know if the taxpayers would wanna support another thing, but that's what's tricky. So they have funding, but not funding for this. And so, that that's requiring everyone to be a little bit more creative because people want it to happen and I do too. But yeah, so it's just about, you know, where is the funding and is there a way to maybe change some of the allocations so that you'll you'll see results sooner because if we don't do something like this, you're not gonna see any change um, for years. And that's just how it is, unfortunately. Yeah. And I can't I can't even imagine it being worse than it is now. And yet Oh yeah. That's the few. Well, so that brings me to what I wanted to talk to you about next, because I know this is the project you're working on right now. It's such an important one, but this is not this has not been the breadth of what you've worked on as an architect. Right. Um, and so I know you've written a lot of books about really kind of futuristic housing and futuristic housing that incorporates a lot of our human history and and more historic kinds of housing. And so I was wondering if you could talk about like, do you have a vision? for Los Angeles, for other cities? Like what would be your utopia in terms of like architecture for a future city? Oh gosh. And even one that incorporates, you know, these these um, developments that can 
can help homeless people and can help them live in a way that's that they deserve to live? Sure. That, that's a hard question. I mean, I, I know that density is our future and that we, LA has some of the least dense developments, you know, based on the number of people who live here because we have so much land and that doesn't really work that well. But, and I, and I, you know, I love places like New York and Tokyo, but one of the things I do love about LA, even if it's not sustainable, is that we have you know, vistas and it's getting more dense. I mean, I, there's a building that just came, came up a couple blocks from me and now I can't see the hills anymore. You know, it, it, we're, we're densifying, it, it's, it's coming. But I do, one of the things I do really appreciate about LA, even if it's not very planned, is just kind of this really whimsical collection of different historical periods of architecture throughout time, all coexisting. It's and funny think, that you say whimsical because when I first came to LA, coming from the East Coast and how, you know, there's such history and all the buildings and such a cohesiveness, my first thought was, oh my God, like it's it, everything looked like it was an eyesore when I first came here. Uh, but I'm mean, getting I, used I, to I, it. I, I'm starting to see it the way you the way you see it. Sure. I mean, I find it very charming, but but it's also really tricky because, you know, I I love I love history and I, I you know, my, one of my favorite periods. We have an amazing collection of Art Deco um, structures out here still and but we also have uh, very little conservation happening. And um, the LA Conservancy is a great organization. They're extremely underfunded. They really struggle to protect all of the great structures that deserve protection. And so I, I see, I've seen so many um, just really remarkable pieces of historic architectural leg legacies just be bulldozed. I mean, there's a project right around the corner from where I live that. I'm not sure if it's true, but this um, family friend who used to live in the neighborhood since, you know, for the last 70 years told me that that structure used to be Charlie Chaplin's old movie studio. And it was this great brick structure. I loved it. And Wait, are you talking about the it. place on La Brea? Or I sure am. Uh, on La Brea. It's gone. They just bulldozed <gasps> it like, the last two weeks. That yeah. was his old studio. See? It's gone. So oh LA, LA can be really devastating that way. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would like to see, I would just like to see a city where, you know, we can move forward and densify and, and change and grow and not be selfish neighbors, but also kind of fight for some of the historical gems that are part of, I think are part of our kind of greater culture as a society. And, you know, it, you go to, you go to Europe, you go to other places, they, they, they keep their buildings. Their buildings matter to them over time. And so you can go into a building that's 500 years old. You know, here in LA, if it's 100 years old, you're like, oh, wow, this is <laughs> the oldest thing for miles or no, thousands of miles. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of a shame that we don't treat our, our buildings, our built environment with a little bit more deference. Um, and we kind of just see it as this disposable thing that, you know, building really now only needs to last, what, 30 years and then it's out of date. But think about how many amazing timeless structures still exist around the world that have so much value because they document kind of a time and a vision and a quest for a longevity that's, you know, beyond, greater than just a collective person or a generation. And LA is... The ones that still exist are kind of, they're miracles that they still exist. But I think that as a society, we should care a little bit more about 
preserving our history and our built our built culture. Yeah. Hopefully that doesn't speak to the longevity of LA in general, that we're just not a sustainable city. Yeah, I know. Um, and that, that and that's what's tricky. And and I think even you know, even with the risk of, of earthquakes and all these things, there's there is a chance for a dramatic re remapping and reimaging of what the city will look like and what the city can become. But I think the most important thing is that we're not going to get very far with a homeless epidemic of this level and with a housing market this unsustainable. I think this this city in particular is really at a tipping point and it's not going to serve us in the long term. It's and we really I think we're in a very kind of volatile yeah, turning point where we have to be really mindful about what's important to us and where we think we can head from here because this this isn't going to work. This isn't working, clearly. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm thrilled to hear from someone who's working toward such a visionary solution. So, Sophia, what's, what's next for you? Are you going to stay in L.A.? Oh, yeah, this is my home. This is this is where even though it's it's complicated and frustrating, it's also beautiful and wonderful. And and there's so much even though there's a lot of darkness and a lot of suffering, there's also just so much hope. I mean, I I was at at Lawson's yesterday getting some expensive breakfast with a friend and this homeless guy came up to me and was talking and he asked for breakfast and I was happy to to take him to breakfast. And but he while we were waiting for for the breakfast to come, he was talking about how he'd been on the streets for 25 years and that he needed to work on being more grateful. And I thought that was so interesting because I think that's something that we all could work on. I, I certainly need to work on being more grateful. And I, I found it very profound that, you know, somebody who has accepted that his life will never probably go farther than what it's become or been the last 25 years really needs to work on mindfulness and being grateful. And I think that's a really great lesson for, for all of us. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about the city is there's so many different ways to be in it and so many different people you can interact with here. And there's just so many good souls and so many good stories and so much inspiration. So even though it's really complicated and there's things about it that I don't think are working, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I love that. I'm going to remember that story the next time I have a tough day in LA. There you go. Me too. <laughs> so, so Sophia, where can people get in touch with you, follow your work? I know you're on social media, right? Yeah, I am on social media. You where can, can they follow you? Um, on Instagram, I'm uh, Hula Hoop Club. And Wait, what's that? <laughs> Sorry, I got to ask you that before we go. Where that's, is that that's fair. Um, so... My brother was a pretty amazing artist and he always had these very unusual names for his different series of drawings he was working on. And so one of my favorite series that he did was called uh, The Hula Hoop Club. And so I kind of adopted that name uh, after he passed away. And um, so yeah, you can find me at Hula Hoop Club on Instagram and then my website, which is uh, sophia-borges at Com. And where can people buy your book, Sophia? Basically any major bookstore, art bookstore, or on Amazon. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Sophia, and just keep up the wonderful work. Oh, thanks. Likewise. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. You can learn more about Sophia's work with Homes for Hope and Mad Workshop at madworkshop.org. And also on Instagram and Twitter, the handle there on both is at the Mad Workshop. And I wanted to also let you know that since we recorded this episode, Sophia had a new book come out that you should definitely check out. It's called Give Me Shelter, Architecture Takes on the Homeless Crisis. It's available on Amazon, on the Target website. And if you are in LA, hopefully your local bookstore. If you enjoyed this show and others before it and guests like Sophia, please take a moment to leave a rating and review for the show. Hopefully a good one on iTunes or Google Play where the show is also now up. I would be so grateful. Our theme music, of course, is by Paul Damien Hogan. Just a reminder to you, I will be off next week and I will see you right after the new year with another episode. Happy New Year.